really appreciated all your uh, listening and uh, conscientiousness and putting up with me. I uh, have never had a better camp audience. Never have had a better camp audience, especially for a week's worth. As I said to the prayer group this morning, I don't know what I'm going to do next week. I'm just going to do my normal routine. I'll be bored there. Raleigh said, well, you'll be reading 10 books. I said, yeah, I read 10 books so I can talk to 10 people, too. I'm not, I'm not crazy about reading. I do read a lot, but that's only because I want to get the message out, be able to d- discuss this thing. Uh, I did come down with an extra reserve of messages just in case. So because we have a little switch in the schedule, uh, I won't be giving the message on war. I do want to start another war. You know, <laughs> I understand your discussions have been real good and... Uh, the one on war would have been great. I also had one on peace I was going to give, and that was the one that was going to cause trouble. <laughs> so I want to thank Wally, uh, Raleigh for his kind remarks. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, but here are a few books. This is uh, Arthur Holmes. He's a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. This is his book, War and Christian Ethics. This is his course on Christian ethics. These are the... Uh, the uh, the various writings from literature. He's just the editor. So it's a whole series of uh, uh, theologians, uh, a few pagan philosophers, but basically Christian theologians, Christian with a, a very liberal mindset as well as a very uh, orthodox mindset. And that's in here, and it's very interesting. spans about 1,700 years' worth of information. So I found that very helpful. A relatively new one on war and peace, and that's uh, Robert Duncan Culver. Now, Dr. Culver did one on uh, the biblical uh, uh, Bible and government. That wasn't the name of it, but it was an analysis of Old Testament civil government that was interesting. This is his latest one, The Peacemongers. This is where he deals with pacifism. He's not a pacifist, and he doesn't like pacifism. And uh, there's a new slant to pacifism, a socialistic slant to pacifism. So I found this very interesting. A biblical answer to pacifism and nuclear disarmament. Very interesting stuff. And then uh, one more popular, and and the kind of edition I like, War, the Four Christian Views. I had one on the five views of sanctification. This is the four views of war. Basically, it's the pacifists, two kinds of pacifists and two kinds of warmongers. Okay, so you got the peacemongers and the warmongers in here. And uh, they all refute each other as well as present their position. And so if you wanted a well-rounded edition on the issue of Bible and war. Now, when you talk about war, you're talking more about whether we should go to war. You're talking about various basic principles of understanding Scripture. How does the Old Testament fit into this? Since the Old Testament, there is lots of war, but we're in the New Testament. How do you deal with those Old Testament texts for today? And so this gives you uh, several different answers to that. Some are right and some are wrong. So you can take a look at those afterwards. So I want to thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. I've been edified. It's good to renew old friendships, real old friendships, and uh, reestablish old friendships and make new friendships. I certainly have appreciated it. Now, I haven't agreed with everything you said, but I have certainly, <laughs> I have certainly appreciated your opinion. And you're welcome to your opinions. (laughs) Now, this is the concluding message. This is the one I had designed, kind of wrapping it together, since we talked about uh, some heavy thing from um, human rights and the varieties of things that creates to uh, AIDS and then other issues. 
Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Let's talk about salt and light. Another famous passage, salt and light passage. Salt and light. Let me look for my all my notes here. How many do I have there? Did it drop down there? I did. I dropped all my notes in San Francisco. Wait a minute. Is there hope? Maybe you will. Is it there? That's okay. I can wing it. <laughs> that usually goes. I'll wing it. You be there. You got it there. Don't worry about it. We can live without it. You don't need notes. I'm designed for all this stuff. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. You come up with all that stuff. She hasn't got it. Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 13. 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost its savior, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under the bushel, but on the stand. And it shines into all that are in the house. Even so, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, after learning all this stuff, and hopefully I've challenged you, as Raleigh has said, into thinking, what does the Bible have to say about a variety of these issues? Now, what are we going to do with it when we go home? Nice intellectual interaction. Nice to study that stuff. The Bible has an answer. Now, are we going to live out that answer? What are you going to do when you go home? How are we going to put that into practice? Well, Jesus addressed and challenges the disciples with two basic elements of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Now, usually when you hear the expression, you're the salt of the earth, you know these people in your town, or in church, they're the salt of the earth. Salt of the earth doesn't really impress you a whole lot. Salt of the earth people are just kind of normal people, average people, salt of the earth kind of a person, kind of someone you'd li- you always like to have around. Nothing impresses you about the salt of the earth, right? See, the expression salt of the earth doesn't impress a whole lot of people. Salt of the earth. It's a common element, important element. Your body can't live without that salt. The world can't live without that salt. You need that salt. Some people have too much salt. Some people need a little bit more salt. My father-in-law, uh, when, during heat uh, time when he lived in Chicago, real hot times, he's got to take salt tablets. Salt tablets maintains the water in him, keeps him alive, keeps him going. Some people can't have a whole lot of salt. But salt is basically a common element. And Christ is describing the believer as one of the common elements. Now, again, I'd like to be known as something special. You know, it's good to be known as something special. And yet, Christ describes us as something common. Salt is not precious, though there have been times in this world, and maybe other parts of the world, where salt is used as a medium of exchange in buying things. 
But we don't use salt in the United States to buy things because it's just so common. It's everywhere. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul describes the elect that way. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's how God describes us just to keep us in our place. 1 Corinthians 1.26 For behold your calling, brethren, not many wise. We'd like to think that we are the wise and the not many are out there. But not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. And there's a lot of them. And Jesus describes us as simply salt. Now one thing a pastor really likes, this is a cue to the congregation, one thing pastors really like, and maybe they like this more than anything else, the kind of member that you can simply count on, that you can rely on. Not necessarily one that's got all the talents, not necessarily, when he, and there's always someone with all the talents and someone who could do all kinds of things. But then there's that individual that can do all kinds of things, but you can't count on them. No, they're not coming this week. They're not coming next week either. But they're coming a the week after that. They're, they're multi-talented individuals, marvelous individuals. You wouldn't describe them as the salt of the earth kind of people, special people they may be. But for my sake, and maybe for some of you, it's simply the... the the faithful member who daily, weekly comes and prays and is, and is willing to help out. That's what I lust after. That's the kind of man, as well as mother, as well as woman, as well as family, that I desire. Simply the faithful individual, salt of the earth. Now, salt is known, among other things, because it stings when you put it in an open wound. But salt is very important because it's basically a preservative. I don't know all the medicinal uses of salt, but basically you remember how, you know, before refrigeration they had the meat. And the meat, if you leave it out in nice, wonderful, comfortable air, what happens to it after a while? Spontaneous generation. These little things start coming out of it. And the Greeks thought that's what those little maggots were. Spontaneous generation. Life generated from putrefying food and so forth. <laughs> Meat has a tendency to do that. And so, of course, they put the salt on it and they smeared the salt and so forth and that gave some preservation. Incidentally, there is a meat that I like. As a diabetic, I kind of like this meat. It's celebrating its 50th anniversary. Spam, right. Good old Spam. It's got lots of salt in it. They do have a low salt Spam, and I like that. But Spam in a can lasts how long? Forever, right? <laughs> and you have it on your shelf forever, right? And I like Spam. The Spam has sugar in it, too, and i got to be careful of that. But it's got salt in it. It preserves in it. It lasts forever. So, so putting that on the meat preserves that meat because the meat tends to putrefy too. You know, when he talks about us as being salt of the earth, it also implies what about the earth? What about the world? The world tends to putrefy. When we say the world tending to putrefy, we're not talking about God's ordinances, the creation ordinances. They don't tend to putrefy. Of course not. It's what people do to God's ordinances that cause a putrefaction and a stink and a rottenness. One of the basic ordinances of God's creation 
is marriage. And it's the gospel that preserves your marriage from putrefying and rotting. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people that will be married, they'll stay married no matter what. Back in the 30s, they would stay married even though they didn't love each other. Nowadays, they just get a divorce and just keep marrying all over the place. They like it so much. That's an ordinance which man in his sinfulness putrefies and rots. You know, sometimes when things start to putrefy, that means they also smell as well as uh, get diseased. But uh, something about your nose, uh, I, I guess the doctors and nurses can tell you about your olfactory nerves, uh, your nose can get used to a lot of things. It can get used to a lot of smells. We went on the hayride last night. <laughs> we get used to a lot of smells. We, we got a dog in the house, too. I still don't like dogs in the house because they smell like a dog. We also have a cat. The house smells like a cat and a dog, so we have to sprinkle this stuff. But after a while, you can get used to it. But then when you go over visit somebody else's house, Everybody's house has a peculiar smell to it. You can get used to those things long enough. Trouble is, sometimes, m many times, we get used to the smell of the world. We get used to that stink. After a while, it doesn't mean anything. Oh, that's just San Francisco. That's just the way it is. They're loony. <coughs> They're loony there anyway. And I have to say to myself, you can't get used to that. Oh, that's just Hollywood. And what they're doing, oh, that's just the way it is in the movies. And you just kind of get used to it. And there becomes a whole block of society where you just sh shove over to here. You just get used to the whole thing. And Jesus says you have to be salt, and a salt is a preservative. It keeps God's creation ordinances from putrefying and rotting. And that's what you are. Now, uh, we had steak last night. How many put salt on their steak? Some put salt on their steak? No. You know, uh, maybe uh, Dr. Garrisy can answer this, my question. Here's my question to you. What if you take two spoons of, teaspoons of table salt and eat them? What will happen to you? Drink enough water, probably not. How about one tablespoon of salt? Just take one tablespoon. I think if you don't drink a lot of water, you don't get sick from it. Yeah. Yeah. It really really dangerous. It doesn't take a whole lot of salt. When you put salt on your meat, it doesn't take a whole lot, right? It doesn't take a whole lot to season it just right. And so he describes us as a salt of the earth. That doesn't mean just a little bit of holiness is all you need in your life. Just a little bit of godliness, that's all. No, he's not talking about a little bit of godliness. We need a lot of godliness in this world. But we may not have a whole lot of Christians in this world either. But we are the salt of the earth. God wants to salt the earth with us. Now, another thing that's interesting, Scripture uses the word salt not even so much in the idea of preservation, but in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, you were to season all the sacrifices with salt. book of Leviticus, Numbers, talks about in all your oblations to the Lord, put salt in it. Why? Is that simply because God likes salt? Obviously, he wasn't going to eat it. The priests were going to eat it. And, but th there was the sweet-smelling odor. Does the salt aid in the sweet-smellingness of it? Not necessarily. But you were to salt all the sacrifices, put salt in it. Well, whatever salt would do to the actual sacrifice, actual meat and the animal itself, uh, salt was part of 
offering up an acceptable sacrifice to God. You see, that's what the salt meant. It was to offer up an acceptable sacrifice. When you pass the salt, there's another, there's another story in the Old Testament that talks about uh, feasting with a king and how that there was a salt exchange of salt and he appreciated that and that salt meant that this, this food, that this fellowship was dedicated. This fellowship was dedicated to God. This sacrifice was dedicated to God. Salt not only meant preservation, but dedication to God. That's what we're to do as believers in Christ, as the salt of the earth. We are to offer up this world to Christ. It's not a burnt sacrifice for sure. We're to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. Let each man, Jesus says, have salt in his life. We're the sacrifices in a real sense, spiritual sacrifices. So the salting of them, the salting of the world, is as it were, offering up to God, the world acceptable. And it does make a difference in the world where the Christian is. Well, verse 13 isn't telling us about salt so much, but warning us if we are not salt. You are the salt of the earth. It's just the opening line. The rest of that verse concentrates on if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth what? Good for nothing but to be thrown out and trodden under foot of men. Worthless salt. Chuck it. It's worthless. It's no good. You are the salt of the earth. If you, if you lose that saltiness, that godliness, you're worse off than the world, you see. The Apostle Paul warns that the one who knew the truth and escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the truth and yet goes back to that, his latter end is worse than the former end. The Christian that reneges on his responsibilities is described by God as worse than the person who's never been a Christian, the person who's never come to Christ at all. That's an awful thing hanging over us as believers. The Christian that fails to employ that godly saltiness is worse than the unbeliever altogether. San Francisco is the way it is, not because of the homosexual community. It's because of the Christians in San Francisco that failed to be salt and light in the city. We just stopped doing things. That's all. We just stopped being what God called us to be, the preservative to keep the city from putrefying. Um, a lot of people leave the city, move out of the city, you know, you may be in a nice, comfortable community. It'd be good to be in a comfortable community. But, but realize this. No community, no society, no business simply stays status quo. Nothing just simply stays the same. Our crime rate just doesn't stay the same. Our pollution rate doesn't just stay the same. The moral pollution rate just doesn't stay the same. It just doesn't operate that way. What, how does the Apostle Paul describe evil men? Second Timothy chapter 3. He says, evil men get what? Remember? Worse and worse. The community will degenerate because of sin. The community doesn't, your community that you live in, your neighborhood, wonderful neighbors, you may have wonderful neighbors now, and maybe next generation will have wonderful neighbors, but that wonderful neighborhood, that community just doesn't stay that way because of the nature of sin. Communities, societies, cities putrefy. 
And that's why we've got to remain in those communities. Now, some people may move to another community for the sake of the children. Some people may stay in that city, stay in that part of town. And so they say to us, and you may have had the same thing, how in the world The lizard, yeah. You see? Isn't it interesting? You only need one little lizard. A huge person and a little lizard. Thank you for the illustration. You see, every community, here's a community here, just can't stay the same. It degenerates as we go along. It will not improve without Christians living out that salt and light. Your city that you live in, that neighborhood which you live in, will not improve without the gospel. It just doesn't improve automatically on its own. Morality as such will not improve your community. Jerusalem, back in 70 A.D., wasn't destroyed because of homosexuality. Whether they had it or not, we don't know. It was destroyed, as Jesus says in Luke chapter 20, because of their long prayers, among other things, and their hypocrisy. Lots of praying, wrong kind of praying. They rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, and that whole community was destroyed because they rejected Christ. And whether they were really immoral individuals, we don't know about that in 70 A.D. with Jerusalem. But it was destroyed because of their rejection of Christ. We have to be salt and light. And maybe they've said to you, as we were going to say a few minutes ago, how can you possibly raise your kids in a neighborhood like that? How can you possibly do that? Well, the thing that comes to mind all the time, and we have people coming to our church, and they have their young families and young children, they say, boy, and they move out, because they say, who would want to raise their children in a community like San Francisco? Well, God planted Israel where? Right in the hearts of the Canaanites, right in the midst of the Canaanites. I mean, there are a lot of other better neighborhoods, God, that we can go to. Remember how when the children of Israel stood in the borderline, ready to go in, and God said, go in and take it. It's all yours. All you have to, I, as a matter of fact, I'll go before you. And what did the Israelites say? What was their first excuse? They're too big. The neighborhood's terrible. It's corrupt. We're like grasshoppers. We're nobody in their sight. And they made an excuse, and God, of course, judged them for not taking advantage of his word, taking advantage of his promises. God planted his own people in the worst kind of a neighborhood. Not all Catholics, all Baal. That's what it was. All over the Vlashtaroth. All the abominations of the Gentiles there. Better community somewhere else, but God planted his people there. Now, again, that doesn't mean you have to move back into a corrupt part of the neighborhood. You don't have to move in the worst part of town. That's true. But God still promises to protect him. You are the salt in that community, in your business. You are the salt in that business. Yeah, that business doesn't, you know, when you're at business with your people, I don't care whether it's a cookie business or uh, just uh, any other kind of uh, industrial factory business or secretarial thing, you know, you don't just type. You don't just take orders. You don't just do business. Everybody lives their whole life there. Everybody in that office lives their whole life out. 
And it can degenerate and corrupt in that business, too. And it takes the Christian getting serious about his Christianity. He must be sold. You're sold. Don't be anything less than what calls you to be. He says, you are the light. Verse 15, you are the light of the... 14 and 15, you're the light of the world. Now, Jesus is the light of the world, for sure. And if we're in Christ, we're the light of the world. We hear that a lot, but realize what that means. He says, you're the light of the world. There is no other condition but the believing condition that's the light to the world. There is no other institution that's described but the church of Jesus Christ that is the light of the world. A godly family is a light to the world because of their godliness. The family as an institution, wonderful as it is, created by God is not the light of the world. A Christian family, a family in Christ is the light of the world, but that's because Christ makes the difference. A good school is not the light of the world, though we need good Christian schools or good uh, Christian businesses or Christian radio and television stations. We need all those things. But the institution of institutions that was supernaturally established, which has the promise of being the light, was the church of Jesus Christ. And he described, that's the only institution. That's the light of the world. We better join up to that institution, get our families under that institution, protect the protection of that institution. It is the light. You're the light. When you walk into your office, when you walk into your factory, when you walk into your school, you walk in as light, meaning everything else is in darkness. Now, not everybody likes light. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, those little things that crawl on the ground. Some, some people have that in their apartments and their houses and little things and tentacles and all kinds of things. And club feet, and, and, and uh, that is, they have all kinds of horrible things that uh, are on these little critters about this big. When the light finally, you flick the light on in the kitchen, what happens? They hate the light. And shine as a light in the world. The world won't love you for it, that's for sure. The world doesn't love light. But remember, light isn't discriminatory either. When you turn on that light, there's not a dark spot in it. There, I got a dark spot right there. No shining right there. Light is indiscriminate. It just shines. And it must shine. That's the nature of that light. That's the nature of you Christians. You must shine. You must give out that light. Whatever light that he gives out, it must shine. You can't hide that light. It goes out. What's he saying? Verse 14 again. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. You're conspicuous. The moment you let them know that you're a Christian, you become conspicuous. You begin to stand out. I remember in my philosophy classes, uh, I would argue the Christian viewpoint of whatever we were discussing, and I got, got into a good rapport with some of the professors there so that when we started a new class and a new semester, uh, you know how teachers say, uh, introduce who they are, and then begin, everybody begins to introduce themselves, and I was introduced. Now, here is the Christian. Now, here's everybody else. And I was always introduced as, here is the Christian. This is the one with the light. And so sometimes when you're introduced like that, how do you feel? <laughs> you just want to melt. Please don't say anything. Don't say that I'm a Christian. I mean, don't deny I'm, I'm not denying that I'm not a Christian. I just haven't said anything, you see. A Christian can't hide that. He's got to be light. He has no place to hide as a Christian. He, has not, he does not have the luxury to hide his Christianity whether he's elected for office, public office or private office, whatever the Constitution of the United States says, he is light and supposed to demonstrate that light. And that light, again, is the light of the gospel. He's got to live out that light. That's a saving light. That's a redemptive light. That world needs that light. 
and whatever else is going on in the office or in the job or at home, you have a responsibility. Now, I talked about rights last, the other day. You have a right to show that light. Well, you have that responsibility to show that light. You've, you have an accountability before Christ. I can just imagine us standing before Christ. Why didn't you show your light then? What answer are we going to give when we stand before Christ? I was afraid. I didn't know what they would do to me. You were what? I was afraid. I didn't know what they would do with me. That won't cut it on the last day at all. No excuses on that last day. We are the light. And thank God Jesus is that light. He takes all the heat and the flack too. We think we're taking the heat. Christ must take the heat and the flack from that. And so it finishes up, verse 16, even so, or I like the King James, which says something a little bit different, uh, let your light so shine. Shine in such a way before men that they may see your good works and glorify your fathers in heaven. Not that you brag about your good works, but we hear a lot of that. I turn on the TV and I see this Christian and he'll parade before me all his good works. And if we give him enough money, maybe he can save the world for us on our behalf. If only we can support him in all his good works and praise him. Small h him. Let your light so shine before men. There's no, in, there's no discrimination in that shining of that light. You just shine that light. That they may see your good works. You let that light shine in such a way. And, and that's not automatic either. It doesn't come automatically. I have people, the fellow's asking me, well, when I, when I interview for a new job, what do I say to the boss about working on the Lord's Day? I mean, here I'm being interviewed for a job. Uh, what do I say about myself uh, uh, being a Christian, uh, whether I'll do certain things? What do I say? Well, I, don't, I can't put words in your mouth. I can't put words in this fellow's mouth what he's going to tell his boss. But what I can tell him is you have to let your light so shine before your boss that he glorifies your Father in heaven. That doesn't mean he glorifies you for being such a wonderful and good person. That means he glorifies your Father. He recognizes your Christian state. Now, how, what you're to say to your boss on that first job interview is between you and the Lord. You work that out. We, couldn't, we can't put words in your mouth. The Bible doesn't put specific words in your mouth. But will you let your boss know? You let that light shine right from the beginning. Now, if you haven't done that right from the beginning and you're into it ten years later on, still you are to let that light so shine. But I may lose this and I may be demoted here and I may all this and there are all our excuses. Remember, when we stand before Christ and he says, why didn't you? Well, I could have lost my job. I couldn't have taken care of my family. I would have had a lower pension and all these other excuses. It doesn't cut it with Christ. Let your light so shine. Now, the message of Christ is real interesting. I like the way Jesus gives an invitation. Jesus gives an invitation, and it's simply this. Go and do likewise. He doesn't call them front. He calls them out. Go. Let me end with this. Now, that's the first time I said it. Bob, you taking score now? I was a salesman. You have three closes, three endings, okay? The first one. Uh, I'm a diabetic. And uh, this is my little needle. Cute little thing. Uh, my father was a diabetic, and I thought all these things, boy, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be a diabetic. No, not me. Not a way. Because he had to inject himself. I mean, who's going to do that? This is a brand new one. I haven't used this one yet, I don't think. 
I think this is okay. <laughs> it's interesting. You get, you get um, advertisements on these needles. This is B&D. I like B&Ds uh, as a brand name for needles because these, it says in the advertisement, these are lubricated. You know what lubricated means? Needles this big. That's what it means. You know? <laughs> it's got oil on it. Wow. You're supposed to jam that thing in your body. <clears throat> but it really does help out. After a while, a few years, you get used to the kind of thing. You're glad it's got oil on the thing. You've got to be careful. And there's, and there's actual science to this whole thing of drawing the needle, aspirating it, getting all the air out and popping it and all this kind of stuff. It's great. Prior to the, the plastic ones, which you can dispose, they had the glass ones. You had to sharpen the needle and all that. Uh, but these, you don't have to. You can, you can do away with it. You just chuck these. Now, I can keep my needle for about a week. I take four shots a day, and I can keep it for a week. That saves on the money and all kinds of things. They're telling you to throw away after one use. That's ridiculous. They just want you to buy more of this stuff. Now, if anybody wants to send me a box of B&Ds, I'll be glad to have it. It's about $20 for me, a box of 100 And so the doctor came in after we diagnosed the disease and all that other stuff. He says, well, we'll start you on insulin. We'll start you on five units. That, can you see five units from there? Can you see five units, Chuck? <laughs> now, Lynn's more familiar with this. and Maybe the other medical people are far more familiar with this. Can you really see five units? <laughs> it's pretty tough. And when I said five units, hey, that's okay. And I talked to these other diabetic friends that I have. You know, diabetics all get together. And you know what we like to talk about? How bad we are. <laughs> How sick we are. We'll love it. Sit around. And they said, how many units? First thing you ask, are you diabetic? Yes. How many units did it take? I said, five units. And they'd laugh. Five units? You're not a diabetic. You lick the thing is what you do. Don't be ridiculous. Put it on a popsicle stick. Smear it on your arm. Take pills. Anything else. Five units? You can't do anything with five units. Well, I needed five units. It wasn't a whole lot in five units. Now, you don't like this. It isn't very much. Five units. When you go to the hospital and they give you a needle, it's always this big. You know, this part of the needle is always this big. But with, for diabetics, and, and the needle's short, doesn't take a whole lot, you can put it in. Five units wasn't a whole lot. And lo and behold, as the year went on, I began to, I had to increase my dosage a little bit more, 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 more. And I was really increasing the thing. I went back to the doctor and said, okay, wrong insulin. Let's get the hard stuff. So I had to be on the hard stuff and put that in. So I put in, the, uh, I put in so much. And I remember putting in this thing. It's just a little, just a little thing. You had to learn to do it yourself. I give you a whole lesson in giving yourself the needle. I used to, uh, I used to put it right about here. <laughs> I'd get up and try to fall, land on the thing. You know. Hey, I'd go in. Sometimes I'd put it on a door. So, Come on in, honey. And the door would open. What I like to do is... What I like to do is when we have company... Uh, when we have company, uh, we sit down to dinner. Nobody invites us to dinner because they don't want to feed me, you know. So we invite them over to our house, and I usually say to the company, excuse me, I have to go take my shot. I'm a diabetic. And I go back into the, the bathroom, and you hear, <laughs> That wasn't the funny part. And then you, then you saunter out very calmly. 
I see this four times a day, you know, and people go, well, how could you do that? And it's marvelous. And you don't need, and the thing that amazed me, and I had to study about insulin in relation to the body and all this other, and diet and so forth, you don't need a whole lot of insulin. I'm only taking 35 to 45 units of this stuff, and that's not a whole lot. I run into people that say, I'll take 100 units of that stuff. That's 50 units. They have to take 100 units of that stuff, and they're bragging about it. It's marvelous stuff. They think they're stupid to take so much. They're probably on the wrong insulin and all kinds of things. But I don't need a lot. My doctors are very good at University of California, and all I need is just a precise amount. All you need is exactly the right amount. And that keeps me going. You don't need a whole lot. You need just the right amount. And the same for the salt of the earth. The same for all those things. Light. It's not as though you have to have a big church in order to make an impact in your city. You don't need a big one. Take it from me. You don't need a big one. I'd get phone calls. How big is your church? I'd say between 49 and 50,000. <laughs> get it? We have only 45, 49 members. Okay. And I tell them, we only have about 50 members. 50 members, you know, and what they've heard in the newspapers is, holy, we thought you had 2,000. 2,000? There's not even 2,000 people in San Francisco. All the churches are small. Don't despise, as Zacharias says, the day of small things. Let me leave you with this one verse. Yes, you may have a small church. And pastors lust after a big church and a big congregation. And, and we should have bigger congregations. We want that too. And it's not numbers that's the stake here. It's that quality of faith. There's the verse that uh, has impressed me a lot. Back in 1 Samuel. Let's see. 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel 14. Here was Jonathan going up against the Philistines. Jonathan going against the Philistines. 1 Samuel 14, 6. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come. This is Jonathan and his armor bearer. You know the story. They win. But notice what he says. Come. Let us go over into the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Be the salt of the earth. There may not be a whole lot of you in your office. You may be the only Christian in your class, in your office. You may be the only godly, Bible-believing church in your community. Thank God for that. You preserve that, redemptively so. You don't maintain the status quo. You're not maintaining the status quo. You're to bring the gospel, and it's supposed to change the world, and God promises that. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that it's not by the size, it's not by the quantity of that faith, but even if it be as a grain of mustard seed, one of the smallest of seeds, we can remove mountains. Anything that may stand in the way of the kingdom of God will be removed. There is no object, there is nothing that can infringe upon the growth of the kingdom of God, be it in our lives, the growth of the kingdom in our homes, in our church, in our communities. There really isn't anything, Lord. And give us that faith. 
may we not despise being salt, being so common, being so foolish to the world, but simply love to do what you say and save the world from sin. Save our communities. Save our schools. Save our president from his sins, Lord. Save our Congress. Save our courts from their sins. And we pray for Dr. Coop that he would live up to his calling as a Christian and himself live out the message of Christ not simply with his life but also with his lips as he combats disease in our country. We ask your blessing on us for Jesus' sake. Amen.